Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artifacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. We'll talk about this I'd afterwards. love to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stick around for lunch and we'll have this chat. <laughs> In this episode, curator Rachel Dedman unpicks the personal and political histories woven into Palestinian textiles, the role of the embroidered woman in resistance movements, and how the British mandate changed clothes after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the 20th century. Hi, I'm Rachel Dedman. I'm a curator, writer and art historian and I'm the curator of Material Power Palestinian Embroidery at Kettle's Yard. And we're surrounded by a century of dresses, jackets and coats. You've called them 100-year-old sisters and they've all come to Cambridge from Lebanon, Jordan and the West Bank, some of them on display for the first time in the UK. Embroidery is both a historic and a living tradition perhaps the most prominent cultural material of Palestine today. Tell us about the context of this exhibition. How has embroidery transformed from a community village-based practice to a contemporary, even commercial craft? So material power spans more than a century of embroidered dress, textiles, heritage and material culture. The exhibition really celebrates the ways in which embroidery in its historical context in the 19th and early 20th century operated as a visual language. The dresses that women stitched and wore reflected their identity, their origins. There was extraordinary regional variation, diversity and richness to the craft. Every single area of Palestine, each town, even neighbouring villages had their own motifs and designs and patterns. They used fabrics differently, specific textiles, different connecting stitches and women could really read and interpret each other's clothing and the personality and character of the woman who made it. And the show delves you, immerses you in that historical tradition, the way it was connected to women's stories as a matrilineal craft, something handed down over generations. But it also thinks about embroidery and dress more broadly as embedded in the social, political and economic dynamics and conditions of its time. So that means thinking about the role of the Ottoman Empire, the way the British Mandate period, when the British took power in Palestine, how that affected social norms, which then shaped dress, the ways in which European materials changed the nature of craft. And we then take the story to 1948, this moment of the Nakba, of major upheaval and displacement for the Palestinian people when hundreds of thousands were expelled from their homes. And we look at the impact of that crisis and the ways that that has then triggered the transformation of embroidery since. So part of that story is the politicisation of embroidery and its role in resistance and solidarity. To bring it into today, we look at the ways in which women are producing embroidery really as a commodity and this labour of love becoming sort of just plain (laughs) labour. Women working for NGOs and making embroidery in very different circumstances, questioning the empowerment that those NGOs often claim to provide for the women they support. 
After the First World War, Britain occupied many territories formerly part of the Ottoman Empire, including Palestine, until 1948. We're standing near a jalea, a split front coat dress made between 1900 and 1915. How did the British mandate impact everyday clothes like these? So in Hebron, the coat dress of the jalea would flap open at the bottom. But after the British mandate period began, social norms around modesty became more conservative. And so women would stitch up that open front. They would have worn a dress underneath anyway, so it wasn't immodest, but this idea of it flapping open clearly became no longer appropriate. And so women started to stitch up the slit or make dresses that retained the look of the split, but without it actually being able to open, to kind of hold on to that local style, but conform to new contemporary norms around modesty. But even as early as the 1900s, we see European cottons and French patterns being imported into Palestine. And by this time, the urban middle classes are already wearing European and Ottoman dresses. Something I love in this show is the archive photographs. And there are some where we see people posing in studios wearing traditional quote-unquote costume. Do you think these images are evidence of regional inequalities as much as regional diversity? Yes, so those particular images are fascinating because at first glance they look to be villagers, you know, the rural men and women who would have worn embroidered dress out in the fields. But being taken, as you say, in the studio, often in Jerusalem, they are actually the urban elite of Palestine. You see the upper classes, but also pilgrims and visitors from Europe donning embroidered dress really more as a costume. And what I find fascinating and in a way a little sad is that what for one woman might have been her most treasured and cherished possession, the dress that she would embroider for years, that was her wedding dress, that was very important to her, becomes for someone else just something that you put on in sort of playful, almost auto-orientalizing dress up. To me, that's an indication of really the different classes in Palestine having quite different relationships to embroidered dress in the early 20th century. We also see the symbol of the embroidered woman after 1948, the Nakba, and 1967, the Naksa, two words meaning catastrophe and setback. Tell me about the role of textiles in resistance. How did women's bodies become or were exposed already as being sites where national identities were projected onto? Well, I think women's bodies have been used really throughout time in cultures all over the world as fertile symbols for different things. But in Palestine, what happened is that embroidery, which before 1948 was maybe just a rural woman's craft, not something people cared that much about, after 1948... The historic nature of the practice meant it became this very powerful symbol for Palestinian nationalism and could kind of take on this newly public role on posters and paintings, but always on the woman. This is the term I use, the embroidered woman, a woman who's toiling for the nation or birthing children, the sort of next generation of Palestinians, or she's holding up a rifle or holding up a dove, but always wearing an embroidered dress. And embroidery becomes both a surface and a symbol for endurance, resilience, solidarity. It's evidence that Palestinians were on Palestinian land long before Zionist forces arrived and you know Palestine is sometimes called a land without people for a people without land as part of Zionist ideology and embroidery is proof that it wasn't. 
thinking about textiles and resistance, you see this in all sorts of ways. The kind of keffiyeh, the black and white headscarf that really became a tool of resistance in the 1930s for men and now is worn by Palestinians of all genders and people all over, to the intifada dresses that were worn in this uprising at the end of the 1980s at a moment where you couldn't show Palestinian colours or flags in public. Women started to stitch onto the dresses that were on their bodies, which could not be taken from them, these explicit symbols of resistance and nationalism. Textiles also play a very practical role in resistance. We're standing right next to a dress that's beautifully embroidered, but it's patchworked with another kind of material. What are we looking at? This is a really remarkable and fascinating object because the dress is old. The main body of the dress was made in maybe even the late 19th century, but certainly by the 1930s in Ramallah. And it was transformed after 1948 because it was donated to a woman who walked into the West Bank, displaced from her home in the crisis perhaps carrying with her nothing more than what she had on. And the original maker donated this dress to her. The woman who inherited it was clearly broader, and she has enlarged the dress using this hessian sacking of the kind that would have held bags of flour donated to refugees by the United Nations in the aftermath of the Nakba. And you can see on the side of it the Arabic letter Noon from the word tahin or flour, stamped in UN blue. So it is in the very fabric of the dress that resistance and resilience. Despite looking so humble and not necessarily special, it captures the lived experience of that crisis and the generosity that women show to each other in these very difficult moments of their lives. Material power really highlights textiles as women's work and it also focuses a lot on the construction of gender norms. Something that's quite surprising is the role of men in this practice too. You mentioned the kefia, a headscarf worn during the Arab revolt, a popular uprising against the British mandate, which was then adopted by the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat after the Nakba. And here we see Tattoo by Khalil Rabah, which deconstructs that scarf and turns it into something quite soft. Yeah, I think there's a really fascinating and little told story in that sense in Palestine because embroidery in Palestine is very much a woman's craft, but I was sure that men were doing it too. I've been working on this subject for almost a decade now and in my research, in my fieldwork, I would often ask, like, where are the men? What are they embroidering? I found some who were working on machines and others who embroidered as political prisoners, detainees in Israeli jails. And I thought that was fascinating because embroidery is a sort of emasculating practice for men out in public. They don't admit to embroidering. But in the prison, which is such a masculine space, it becomes something that men are really proud of doing. And there are periods when crafts are allowed in prisons and periods when they aren't. So the objects they make are often really modest and simple, using improvised materials, whatever they could find. Books, little prayer beads, bags made of reinforced cardboard with embroidery on the front that speak both to resistance and to sort of the Palestinian cause, but also quite tenderly to love. And these are objects made for wives and daughters and mothers on Mother's Day and so on. So they do confound our expectations around what embroidery means in terms of gender. And Khalil Rabah's work, as you say, is here to do that as well. So what we see is a kefir stretched 
on a board, but he has removed from it the black threads that make up that bold monochromatic pattern in the centre, and they sit at the bottom of the object like hair. And it does feel as though he's taking this very sort of stark symbol and giving it body. But the trace of those threads remains sort of ghost-like, visible within the fabric. And I think even though he's deconstructing a symbol, he's thinking about the persistence of certain ideas and symbols, even when we can't necessarily see them on the surface. And the exhibition really puts these contemporary and historic works in conversation from 1870 to just a few weeks ago in 2023. You've said before that embroidery is a universal human craft, but it's the regional differences and diversity, which we see here often transcends religion, that's unique to Palestine. This exhibition, though, was born out of a previous one held at the Palestinian Museum in Lebanon and West Bank and draws from archive interviews from all across the region. As much as showing regional differences, do you think it also suggests that transnational solidarities? Absolutely. What we call embroidery from Palestine, particularly in the 19th and early 20th centuries, is a kind of modern way of looking at the region. Of course, back then, the region was called Beled Hashem. There wasn't really a difference between Palestine, Syria and Lebanon, or what we now consider these territories so there's certainly all sorts of transnational exchange happening in terms of the historical textiles themselves silks and threads coming from Syria others woven in Egypt finding their way into Palestine so we have to kind of remember that the way that we're splitting up these places is a sort of 2023 way of looking back at the land and the territory but in terms of the contemporary artists it was indeed crucial to us to bring their voices into conversation with these historical objects, the stories of embroiderers and their voices too, across the region, living in diaspora, in refugee camps elsewhere. Artists like Aya Haida, who's from Lebanon, but based here in the UK, she was showing these stunning, delicate embroidery hoops which document memories of her mother growing up in Lebanon during the civil war between 75 and 1990. The very simple, but if you think about it, quite dark ways in which her family stayed safe in the sort of day-to-day experience of conflict, standing in the doorframe in case the roof caved in, wearing pots and pans on your head while watching television in case of stray bullets from a sniper. She captures in this technicolor manner the personal, the human experience of conflict, a different conflict but one, of course, connected to Palestine. And for me, the contemporary work like this is about the enduring ability of embroidery to articulate themes like memory, resilience. You mentioned earlier on about reading textiles, and this exhibition really uses them to tell histories of the 20th century. The last major UK exhibition of textiles like these took place in 1989. Do you think it's even more important to have a show like this now, given how conflicts, not just between Israel and Palestine, but across Southwest Asia and North Africa more widely, are threatening the destruction of conventional historical sources? I do. I think the exhibition could not be more timely. In a way, regardless of what's in the media at any one moment, for me this is about the telling of really unheard stories, particularly those of women. Thinking about the historic garments in the exhibition, these are made by women who have very little trace in the historical record more generally. Poor women, rural women who worked. It's a privilege, I think, to bring this clothing, to treat it with dignity and to tell its stories for people to appreciate the extraordinary skill and work and lives that they lived.
in terms of the more recent and contemporary work, I feel like there's so much that will resonate for people who care about political struggle, fights for freedom, the rights of women, and textiles has this familiar, intimate, universal way of unfolding histories that can seem complex. It goes without saying that this shatters any artificial binary between arts and crafts that anyone might dare to think. And the histories of women and the histories of textiles are both marginalised in the museum space, certainly. The latter often dismissed as material culture. You have curated textiles at the V&A before. This exhibition will travel on to the Whitworth, which itself has a very strong textile tradition. Do you think there's a particular power, perhaps, in partnering these two histories, both marginalised in their own ways and exploring one through the other? Yes, I think there's a lot to be said for bringing them together. It felt fundamental to us that the embroidery and textiles weren't seen in a vacuum on their own, but rather in conversation with posters, with video, with archival imagery, with graphic design, with objects, with contemporary artwork, so that you get this richer picture of how textiles and dress then shape other aspects of creativity and material culture and so on. There's so much that clothing can tell us. Embroideries tell stories, your clothing tells stories. We all have a relationship to clothing and how we perform our identities, our histories, our joys and our struggles on our bodies. So my dearest hope is that people feel something familiar and resonant in the exhibition, wherever they're from and whatever their views are. Rachel, thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Material Power Palestinian Embroidery runs at Kettle's Yard in Cambridge until the 29th of October 2023, then the Whitworth in Manchester into 2024. For more, you can read my article in Go With Yamo. You'll find all the links in the episode notes. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofronievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.